Reminder about the structure of 2 Corinthians, part 1, verses, or chapters 1 through 9, is about the majority. He's writing to those with whom he is pleased. He's saying, You have received the message that I gave to you before. You exercised discipline. You have feared God in this. And then the second part of the letter, chapters 10 through 13, are for those with whom he is most seriously displeased. It is those who are the super apostles and those who remain connected to them, the minority. And so the church has pursued the course of holiness, and now there is a division there about those who want to pursue the course of holiness and those who do not. And so we enter into significant instruction today as we look at chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we will find that there is instruction about holiness here that is important. And we know that the book has focused upon the idea of comfort. In other words, the receiving of strength through suffering. So comfort through suffering. So page 2. Chapter 5, verses 1-10 through 10 is about the state of believers after death. I have titled this sermon, Paradise, Power, and Propriety. The beginning is on paradise. Now, we will find later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that there's a reference to paradise and to the third heaven. We find that that is a proof text that says that heaven is paradise and that paradise is not in the middle of the earth. I've had some discussions with some of you about this as we've been trying to deal with the way in which the Apostles' Creed, for example, gets used and abused. And there are a number of people who try to find a halfway point uh, between sort of the papist view that Christ, after he died, went to hell and suffered, and some sort of a Protestant version of that where he goes into some place that's in the middle of the earth, but it's not hell, and it's a paradisal Hades, but it's not heaven. Paul very plainly teaches us that paradise is heaven. And so we'll get there eventually. But right now we're dealing with the resurrected state. So chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For we know that if our earthly house, he's talking about our bodies, this tent, so now he's giving the present body as a tent, is destroyed, death, we have a building from God. And the root for that word building is, is the root for the word house, not like a household, but a literal building. So an, an edifice, a building. A house not made with hands. Eternal. This is eternal in the sense of everlasting, not without beginning. Everlasting in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, the present body, grown, being burdened, what are we burdened with? Not because we want to be unclothed, not because we want to be dead, not because we want to be without a body, but further clothed, given a a body that's better. How better? It is without curse, and it is also a more mature condition. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. One of the charges you'll find people make if you talk to an atheist, if you push on a smart atheist and you say, look, your life is meaningless, you're a nihilist, you're stuck with nothing, you have a miserable, meaningless existence, and all you have is boredom, deal with it. They'll push back and say, Christianity leads to a meaningless life, and it leads to a suicide wish. 
this desire to leave this earth. And there's a, there's a power to that charge. Think about it for a second. This life is full of misery. It is a valley of tears. There is suffering continually in it. And there is this desire, this groaning, to be present with Christ and to be out of this cursed condition. And so there is a powerful way in which the charge of the atheist seems to stick. And Paul has given us an answer here. It is not that we have a meaningless life. It is not as that we have a suicide wish. It is not that we seek after death. We seek more full life. And so we have Paul's example that we should not seek to die, but rather we should suffer here for the good of our fellow saints and for the advancing of the glory of God. And so we have work knowing that we suffer through, we march through, we trudge through, we keep on fighting, and the result is that there is blessing, there's reward in the next life, there's an eternal weight of glory to service. And so the desire to escape is wrong. The desire to press forward, to advance, to accomplish the goal, and to realize that we are not now in our mature condition, and that we are not in our full dress. And so what we desire is to be more fully clothed. And so that is the desire. There is no death wish in Christianity. There is a life. There is a desire for more full life. Now there's verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of all of the things we're going to receive in inheritance as an adopted son. It is the first payment. It is the down payment. It is the earnest money. And so, I have repeated this. Why do I repeat this? Because the Scriptures repeat it. Why did the Scriptures repeat it? Because it's important. When we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment, an earnest money, a security deposit, a guarantee, what does that mean? It means God gives us the Holy Spirit, and if He doesn't give us the rest of what He's promised, he will lose the guarantee. He will lose the down payment. He will lose the earnest money. He would lose the Holy Spirit. He would tear apart the Trinity. That is not possible. And because it's not possible, we know that His promises are true. He cannot, He will not break them. And so we have the ability to be comforted by these words in the midst of suffering. Now, a couple of other interesting ideas about this nakedness. The body is the clothing of the soul. That is the analogy that Paul has given us. The body is the clothing of the soul. Angels are naked souls. Now think about Adam and Eve. They were made naked, were they not? And they were unashamed. The righteous angels remain naked. And they are unashamed. The unrighteous angels, they are naked. And they have shame. Unending shame. There is no mediator between God and demons. And so this idea of clothing, the body. Why do we have bodies? We have bodies so that we can have a mediator who represents us, who can die without having spiritual death, so that he can die as a substitute without sinning. Our bodies point to the fact that we have a mediator. And clothing points to the idea of a righteousness that's not our own. Angels are not clothed spirits. We are clothed spirits. The body is a reminder of the Redeemer who came in body. 
Now, this desire to be more fully clothed, further clothed, a more full and mature and blessed body, a body without curse. That is what we have to look forward to. Now, verse 6. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Okay, so there's an argument line here. The word so. So we are always confident. Why are we always confident? Because we have the guarantee. We have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. So we're always confident. And we know this, that while we're at home in our current bodies, we're absent from the Lord. There's a blessing. There's a reward. There's a blessed condition to look forward to, to be present with Christ. Verse 7, For we walk by faith and not by sight. This verse is often misquoted and misunderstood. Walking by faith is not eliminated by walking by sight. People often talk about the idea of right now we're walking by faith and there's a time when we'll walk by sight in terms of this idea of we are going to not have to believe anymore as though belief is inherently believing without evidence or believing is not based upon some sort of a sensory experience and sensory experience eliminates faith. That is how this often gets cited. When it says, for we walk by faith, not by sight, the idea here is faith in the Word of God versus the appearance of things not compared to a future condition. We walk based upon belief in the Word of God and not based upon our experience, not based upon the sight of the physical eyes, not based upon the appearance of things. How does this relate to the text? Well, verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So, these two conditions, being present in the body in the midst of suffering is something that we are confident and desirous to do. Dying and going with the Lord is something we are confident and desirous to do. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And so the idea here is that we can do both in faith. We can live and suffer and see advance by faith, or we can die for the truth by faith. And so, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent. Notice that regardless of which one. Are we present with Christ or are we absent from Christ? Are we present in the body or absent from the body? Which one? It doesn't matter which condition it is. In either one, we are to walk by faith. Notice we walk by faith in both, and the faith doesn't end in the second. Faith, hope, and love, these three abide. Right? Those, those gifts, none of them. Faith does not end. Faith does not end in the presence of Christ. Faith does not end when you stare upon his human body. Faith continues. You will have faith forever. Faith is believing the word of God. Saving faith is believing the Word of God. And the virtue, the Christian virtue of faith does not end. It is not replaced with sight. We certainly will enter the presence of God. We will enter the presence of Christ in His human nature. We will see Him with our own eyes and behold His glory. But our faith will not end. Faith is based upon 
the Word of God as the authority. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. We are to glorify Christ in this life and the next. You are still going to have intentional, thoughtful, faithful obedience after the resurrection and before the resurrection in paradise, but after your death. We will never cease to have intention. We will never cease to have aims. We simply have different conditions. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. page 3. So now, we're talking about Paul's defense of himself against the charge of self-condemnation. Sorry, not condemnation, commendation. So people are saying, you know, Paul, you're walking around and saying that you're awesome, and if you bear witness about yourself, then I guess there's nobody else who's willing to bear witness about you, and so why are you commending yourself as opposed to having other people commend you? Well, I mean, you might have something to do with the fact that the super apostles are going around and intimidating everybody who wants to say anything good about Paul, and they're going around and mocking him and attacking him and making a concerted effort staying there while he's going around and fulfilling his commission. So he feels a need to defend himself. Verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So he's commending himself. Remember he was doing that earlier on. The earlier chapters, 3 and 4, we saw him commending himself. And he's saying, do I need letters to you to be reintroduced? Or is it possible that you are my letter of commendation? That your existence as a church is a letter, an epistle, recommending me to you. And so, Paul is saying, in the sight of God, in the terror of the Lord, we seek to persuade men, and we are well known to God. We are not nameless to God. And you know us too. So he calls on the witness of their conscience. He calls on the witness of God and the witness of their conscience. And so he's commending himself while appealing to two other witnesses, and really four other witnesses, the triune God and also their own consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf. Why don't I have any witnesses? Because you're cowering out. Act like men. Defend me in your congregation. Don't let my slander go unargued against. You want somebody to commend it? Then look to yourself. That is what he is saying. He is saying, why are there no defenders? I don't know. Why aren't there? What is wrong with you? That's what he's saying to this church. And in saying there is no defense of his own name, he is calling them to be ashamed that they might fight, that they might stand. That you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. He's saying, look, these super apostles, these guys that think that they're so great, you've seen our work, you've seen our suffering, you've seen the integrity we put forward, but they boast in appearance. They look so grand. But what is in their hearts? What evidence do you have? What is their doctrine? What is their manner of life? Verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. 
or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. The idea here is commending himself is itself a sort of extravagance. It looks, looks almost crazy. It's like, all right, fine. I'm an apostle. Great, listen to me. I'm better than them. Yes. And if this seems crazy to you, it's for the glory of God that I am boasting about my office. And if it seems like I'm being of sound mind and humble and calm, it's so that I can give a demonstration of good order for you. And so he's saying that he is putting this forward. This is a sort of combat. There is in combat an oddity that men seem super rational and also insane. They do things of wild fury and insane acts of heroism. And those are the only rational things to do. To do anything else is a death sentence. And so there is this appearance of insanity and yet an appearance of ultimate rationality. To cast the die, lest you die. Page 4. And so Paul in spiritual warfare is doing the same sort of thing. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Christ's love for us, in other words, as a motive, compels us to love Christ by doing the commandments of Christ. In other words, as he defines love. So Christ's love for us compels us to love Christ and thereby to love you in the way that Christ defines love. His law. Christ died for the elect. Thus the elect have died. And the goal of the death of Christ was to cause the elect to live for Christ, who died for them and rose again, rather than living for themselves as false gods. If you live for yourself and for your pleasures, you worship yourself and your pleasures. If you live for Christ, you worship Christ. Verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have this thought here about regarding a person according to their flesh, according to their natural abilities and capabilities versus the spiritual, the Holy Spirit. And we're not to regard each other according to the old man, but according to the new. And even though Previously, Christ was seen in bodily form. We see him in bodily form no more. Therefore, if anyone, therefore he's died, and therefore he's, we've died with him. That's the idea. And he's resurrected, and he's ascended. And that's why we don't see him anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you're in legal union with Christ, if, if he's covenanted with you, and if you have faith in him, and then you're a new creation. The old thing, the old man has passed away and all things have become new. You have become new and the world has become new in your eyes. Think about this. How has everything become new? When Christ died, did all curse get removed? No, but we passed an epoch. This is the time when curse is starting to be removed and blessing is starting to fill the earth. 
and there was a change of perspective of the time of retreat to the time of victory. This is the advance. And so everything is made new. By faith we see the world not as what it appears to be, but by what it is promised to be. By faith we do not look upon the outward elements of curse and think it cannot be changed, but instead by faith we look upon it and say this will be overcome. By faith we are not stuck in a place where the dead rule. We are in a place where the living rule. And they replace the dead with the living. The same man made new. Verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation. So first of all, let me point out something. There are many who look to verses like this and want to eliminate the distinction of officers and non-officers. They do not read the word carefully, and so they do not realize that this text is about officers. Who? The apostolic band. But there are those who read carefully, and they read too carefully. Not careful as they ought to, seeking to take every jot and tittle and understand it, but reading carefully to find ways to make sure that people do not have the freedom that they ought to have. We should read this text and realize the ambassadors, those who are called to the ministry of reconciliation, those are officers. But we should also recognize that the things that are talked about here are not things merely for officers. You are all called to take the word of reconciliation to the world. And you are all called to be ambassadors to the world. And this text is talking very specifically about Paul and his band. And it is applied to officers. And there is an application to every Christian. But his argument here is about his office. So, one, do not be egalitarian and destroy all hierarchy that God has established. And two, do not be a clericist seeking to retain in a clergy class some unnecessary distinction. So, when you see this word you find people sloppily handling it and not realizing the way in which it's about officers, I will show you how to avoid that. On the other side, do not allow people who recognize the fact that this text is talking about officers to make it so that you think you cannot use the word of reconciliation. So verse 18, Not all things are of God. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God has given to Paul, to his apostolic band, and to all officers, a ministry of reconciliation. It is a priestly ministry. It is a ministry, we are all priests, 
and is a ministry where there is a particular role for public officers. Verse 19. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Okay, so God, in the work of Christ, caused the world which was His enemy to be reconciled to Him. Reconciliation is taking an enemy and making him a friend. God has taken the enemy that is the world and made it his friend. He has taken enmity and made it love. Not that God hated and then loved. There is no change or shadow of turning in him. But rather he took a world that hated him and is making it love him. He is subduing it to himself. And he has made this possible by the work of reconciliation where Christ paid for the sins of the world, the elect, so that their sins would not be imputed, reckoned, credited, accounted to them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He's done that to the church. He's done it to the officers of the church. That word of reconciliation. And I am exercising that ministry to you now. That ministry is the public preaching of the Word. But there is a private ministry of the Word of Reconciliation. And that private ministry of the Word of Reconciliation is your duty that is explained in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4 it says that the officers are to equip the body. That they, being equipped, might do the work of ministry, building each other up, and they also are to evangelize to the world. And so your private word, your private speaking of this message of reconciliation is both in private counseling and in fellowship and encouragement to each other and also to an unbelieving world to see them resurrected from the dead. The line of argument that Paul is giving, though, is why his ministry should be defended. So do you see how The text is talking about officers. But the application to every one of you still holds. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now there's a way in which all of us are ambassadors. You have been baptized. You have a mark upon you. A seal upon you. And it differentiates you as different from the world. You are not of the city of man. You are of the city of God. And that mark upon you makes it so that every act you do, people will either use it to honor Christ or they will dishonor Christ because of that action. You are under the banner. You are a soldier. You are there. You are enlisted. And your uniform cannot be erased. And so you will bring honor or dishonor upon your king. But this word for ambassador is very specifically the word elder. That's why I put it there for you in in the Greek so you can see it. It is the word presbyter. That's the word. Is everybody an elder? No. Does the application that everything you do represents Christ still hold? Yes. So what is the literal language? What is the sense of the text? The sense of the text is, now then, we, the apostolic band, are elders, public officers, for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Officers, specifically elders, a part of their office is that they are ambassadors, they are elders that in an official appointed capacity they represent Christ. And every one of you is baptized. As a baptized person you represent Christ. So there is an application there. And you should plead with the world and you should plead with each other seeking to see those who are unbelieving to be reconciled to God and seeking to see those who are your brethren who are baptized and yet are in unrepentant sin that they would turn. It is your duty, but there's a special duty of officers. Let me read to you what Hodge says on page 5 here. An ambassador is at once a messenger and a representative. He does not speak in his own name. If I get up here, if I'm at this pulpit and I'm preaching to you, I'm not speaking in my own name. I am calling down, saying, this is the message of the King, Jesus Christ. And you should heed it as His Word. Which is why it's so important to challenge any false doctrine He does not speak in his own name. He does not act on his own authority. What he communicates is not his own opinions or demands, but simply what he has been told or commissioned to say. His message message derives no part of its importance or trustworthiness from him. At the same time, he is more than a mere messenger. He represents his sovereign. He speaks with authority, being accredited to act in the name of his master. Any neglect, contempt, or injury done to him in his official capacity is not a personal offense, but an offense to the sovereign or state by whom he is commissioned. All this is true of ministers. They are messengers. They communicate what they have received, not their own speculations or doctrines. What they announce derives its importance not from them, but from him who sends them. Nevertheless, Since they speak in Christ's name and by His authority, as He has ordained the ministry and calls men by His Spirit into the sacred office, the rejection of their message is the rejection of Christ. And any injury done to them as ministers is done to Him. It is important that we recognize the institutions that God has made and that we care for office And our tendency as Americans, we have a glorious desire to see liberty. But sadly, we have not continued to receive the glorious desire to see order. And so we must care for right order. We must care for right authority. We cannot honor usurpers. And we should not dishonor legitimate officers. Now back to verse 20. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. So when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, his office and the office of the band that is with him is God pleading. And we implore you on Christ's behalf. It's Christ's pleading. Be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There's an argument here from the grace of God saying we ought to obey Him because He sent Christ who was no sinner to be counted a sinner. And He did that so that Christ in dying would expiate, remove our guilt, satisfy the just demands of the law, remove all debt from our account. He was made sin for us as a representative in our place, in our stead, and made payment. Why? Just so that we could be innocent? No. So that He could in His active obedience fulfill all of the demands of God's law even obeying God the Father to following orders to die. Have you heard of the light brigade? They followed orders into a charge to die. Christ died knowing that there was zero chance of victory because it was predestined that He would die, that by dying and suffering defeat, He would obtain the victory. The death was required. And he did that to fulfill the positive requirements of the law that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That we have righteousness that's not just ours, not like the righteousness of angels, the righteousness of servants, but it is the righteousness of God. We have the righteousness of God imputed to us in union with Christ. Another reason why the hypostatic union is so glorious, we have a communion with Christ And He, in His human nature, is united to the divine nature so that His obedience as a man is accepted as the righteousness of God. And we have the righteousness of God imputed to us. We are sons, not just righteous servants. Page 5. Chapter 6, verses 1-18. through The Apostle's faithfulness and love. The Apostle continues to defend himself in these first ten verses. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, is it possible, we're good Calvinists, receiving the grace of God in vain, what does that mean? Well, are we talking about the irresistible grace being resisted? Are we talking about the outward giving of the word of reconciliation and that not being believed or being resisted, but yet it didn't return void. God did what he wanted. Or are we maybe talking about those who are saved believing and then not being fruitful? Well, I think it's the second. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Now this applies to those who do not believe their need to repent, but it also applies to those who believe and are living in sin and need to repent. This is the acceptable time. This is the day of salvation. Repent of your sin now. Follow after God now. Page 6. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, and imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by by, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers, but yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. One of the charges against Paul is that he is no rhetorician. This is one of Paul's mad strivings to show them if he wants to, he can do it. He can give lists to flutter the heart and flutter the heart with lists. But that's not what he's principally caring about. And so all of this can be unpacked. And it ought to be. But notice how in order to read it, you have to already know. And if you just get the list and don't know already, it's not of value. So Paul wants to avoid causing offense. That's what an ambassador ought to do. That way the ministry would not be blamed. A good ambassador suffers for the sake of his ambassadorial work for the king to represent the king well. Because if he gives offense, he might give offense in such a way that harms his king's cause and message. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. So why commend himself? Why go through this process of commending self? Not for himself, but for his office. How does he commend himself? Well, he's done it with some words, but then he's saying, Well, look here. Why don't you remember for a minute and think upon the things you've witnessed? Have you seen endurance or fortitude? Have you seen tribulations that we have suffered under? Trials? How about the process of being slandered by these super apostles and none of you defending me? Is that a trial, Corinthians? I appeal to your consciences and I appeal to God. Right? That's what he said. So he's already calling on these things. And he's showing this is a trial and it's an unjust trial. In needs, he suffered much and some of it because they failed to equip him when they ought to have, despite his service. In distresses, there are many troubles, like being slandered by people there without anybody defending. The idea that there's over and over again, this is difficulties that he's suffering. In persecution, what kind of persecution? Well, he suffered stripes. Which of the super apostles have suffered stripes? He's been imprisoned for the gospel. Which of them has been imprisoned? He has gone through many a tumult. 
You might imagine basically a bar fight, but it's not over alcohol. And a tumult, there's chaos, riot. Think about what you see with Ephesus when Paul is there and he's preaching against the idols. And the result is the concern that the idolatry business is going to stop. And so there is this sort of chaos where they yell. He's done a lot of work, laborers. He's lost a lot of sleep, sleeplessness. And he has been willing to not eat food. Remember 1 Corinthians? There's a lot of teaching about food there and the desire to be able to eat things. He says, I've given up food many a time to fast for these labors. Now, these are all things that he has done, suffering. And then now here's positive examples. So here are the negative things he's taken on. And now we're moving to positive example. Here are the positive things he does to display his ministry. And these are all examples that ministers ought to be called to, that I ought to be willing to do, that any of us who bear the burden of government ought to be willing to take these sufferings and then to do these positive things. Purity. Being above reproach. Avoiding the appearance of any sort of improper desire. By the display of knowledge. Teaching. The process of enduring or showing fortitude in the midst of trouble. Moving on. Pressing toward the mark. The word long-suffering, normally, normally the word is much-suffering. When you see long-suffering, it's almost always much-suffering. Macro-suffering. The willingness to suffer much for the mission, for the ambassadorial work. By being kind. By the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It's by the, the fruits and gifts of the Holy Spirit being made manifest. By sincere love or unhypocritical love. Doing what the law of God requires without some sort of wicked motive or without something that's being unveiled to show this is hypocritical, this is insincere, this is false. That is partly shown by its constancy and by doing it at cost. By the word of truth. Speaking the word of truth. Not just having knowledge, but but proclaiming it. And that's an act of love. And do you know when it's most obviously an act of love? When you know it will not win you friends. By the power of God. The power of God can be miracles. The Holy Spirit could also be referring to miracles. But since they're both listed here, it seems that the Holy Spirit part is talking about the gifts and fruits of the Spirit. And the power of God would be both miracles, but also the power of God to convert. The fact that people get converted by the ministry. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Translators, when they can avoid talking about weapons, they generally do. I know a little bit about armor. So bear with me for just a second. Typically, you do not use armor to attack people. I suppose you could. There are ways. We are imaginative creatures. We could find ways to do it. But generally, armor is not an offensive tool. The word there is hoplon, which I'm sure at least 50% of the men know is a reference to the Greek circular shield, the large shield that hoplites carried. 
And so that shield becomes a sort of byword to refer to instruments of war generally. So you might, as opposed to saying armor, you could say arms, which includes armor, but also includes offensive weapons. But it can also be used to refer to tools, instruments. And so the idea here should actually, frankly, remind you of Nehemiah with the sword and the trowel, a tool in each hand, one to build, one to destroy. A a tool for working and a tool for keeping. So by the instruments, the tools of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. The word on can easily be translated as in. So a tool of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Let both of your hands, let all of your action be put constantly to good work. And that's what an ambassador is called to do. There is a lovely set of books, one called How to Be a Man, and the other one called How to Be a Lady. These two books are the exact same book, slightly altered to add lace and frill and sweetness and light to the girl's book, and mud and guts and glory a little bit to the boy's book. 90% the same. And the principle is essentially this. Treat others well. Take responsibility. Honor the Lord. These are the basic things laid out across about 100 pages. And in this book, there is this idea that the good life for boys and for girls is the life of constantly going from one good work to the other and that recreation is really just picking up a different kind of good work. Have you been moving physically? You should do the good work of sleeping. Have you been doing the good work of studying? You probably need to move around because you're antsy. And so do the good work of exercise or gardening or making something with your hands. There is the moving from one type of good work to the other. And there's always a good work that will help you with your condition, in your weakness, in your frame of mind. And so you move from good work to good work to good work to good work. The life of activity of righteous activity where you are double fisting good works. By honor and dishonor, how does this work? How can we have both honor and dishonor be the things, the tools that an ambassador should use? An ambassador should properly honor some people and dishonor others. There is a call to dishonor. One of the things you do is you dishonor usurpers. Paul spends a lot of time dishonoring the usurping officers in this book. And he dishonors people who fail to do their duty and calls them to repent. And when they do repent, he restores them fully and brings them back to honor. By evil report and good report. What's an evil report? An evil report is when you say something bad about somebody. Ambassadors are called sometimes to speak truthful, evil reports. This person is doing this wicked thing and it must be stopped. There are times when it's obligatory to say that. And there are times when there are good things to be said and those things ought to be said. Paul does both in this letter. And then what we have 
going forward, when he says, as deceivers and yet true, and so forth, he changes. First he has the lists of in, 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 in. Then he has by, 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 by. And then he has as, yet, as, yet, as. And so in these lists are rhetorical paradoxes. As deceivers and yet true. But some people will call us deceivers and so let them call us. Is there actual deception? Is he going around saying, let's lie to people? No. But he's saying, I will be reputed as a deceiver, and yet I will be true in reality. I will speak the truth. And you know what? Many people will be tempted to call him a deceiver because he speaks the truth. There are no lies so dangerous as the truth, and no truth can ever be overcome ultimately by lies. as unknown and yet well-known. People like to dismiss as nobodies those who are beginning to be known. When somebody rises, the first thing is, this is an extremist, this is a liar, this is a person that doesn't matter. There's this effort to hide it, to shove it under the rug, to make it disappear, and when it cannot be ignored anymore, yes, well, he's well-known as whatever. Which is it? Unknown and yet well known. As dying, and behold, we live. Dying to self, living to Christ. Dying from those who want to say, ah, oh, they're nothing, they're nobody, they can't accomplish anything. They'll go away, they will fade. And yet there's life. Chastening, chastened yet not killed. The enemy wants to chasten. God does chasten for our good. The enemy wants to chasten in order to kill. Paul was beat 39 times, multiple times. And survived. It won't go away. Sorrowful about evil, but always rejoicing that it will be overcome. That Christ's reign is more and more manifest in the earth. As poor, yet making many rich. Poor and giving out the treasure. The treasure that's hidden in the clay jars. A treasure of the word. Making many rich in wisdom. With the riches that are richer than any other riches as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Right? He, he spins himself, pours himself out, uses his resources, tries to strive to accomplish goals and solve problems and move them out of the way and is constantly feeling as though he has no resources left and yet the world is his. He's an heir of all things and he is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This is the attitude that the ambassador takes. This is the way the ambassador commends himself. This is the way that every Christian ought to live. And every man, if he knew how to, would live. This is the happy life. And it is a life that's filled with suffering. And there is strength and comfort in it. And so Paul, in verse 11, go to page 7, he says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, or we've opened our mouths to you. We've been transparent to you. Our heart is wide open. We're showing you what we're thinking. There's nothing being hidden here. This is plain and straightforward. I'm being candid with you. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. You love the wrong things. Your affections are not what they ought to have been, and so you do not speak with us openly as you should. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. I'm being open with you, you'll be open with me. Should he have to do this? Should he have to negotiate with those who are under his authority? No. They should obey him. But what does he do? He shows them that he 
would feed them from his own blood if he had to. That he would die to make them live. He shows that if he needed to, that he would give of himself to the very end. And so since he has shown his affection, give your affections to him. That's the idea. Officers have to behave in this way. And parents, you must behave this way. There is no stronger way to gain the affections of those who follow you than to show that you would give yourself for them. Which is why husbands are called to do that for wives. This is how we can make the world hear us when we say, you are wicked, repent. Turn from your ways. Turn to Christ. A desire to, yes, we're giving you burdens of the law, but the yoke is easy and the burden is light. I will help you to bear it. Let's go together. This desire, this willingness to sacrifice, knowing that the goal is the glory of God and that that will give you great joy. It will give you great riches. And God will restore to you that which you have used. This is the powerful way for dead men to be brought to life. It is the powerful way for those who are straying to be brought back. Straightforwardness, candor, these are Protestant virtues. And a desire to sacrifice for the well-being of others. Now here's the plea. Verse 14 is the turning point. What is he saying here? He previously, in 1 Corinthians, had talked about the need for church discipline. That had been enacted. And that was a part of the call to holiness. But there are those who will not uphold church discipline. And this includes these false apostles. And now the call is that his, he is calling the Corinthians for their affections to be properly turned to those who they ought to have holy alliance with. Those who are following Christ and obeying His Word. And so he says in verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Who is he talking about? Those that claim to be believers. Those that claim even to be apostles. But what they are doing and what they are saying is showing that they are liars. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There is a principle of separation that the saints are always obligated to. If you have control and you have the majority and there are those who are unrepentant, unclean in your midst and they will not obey the word, you remove them. You exercise power to remove them. But if you do not have power, if you have lost the seats of power, if you do not have a way to reform the institution that you are in, the only call left 
is to come out from them and be separate. There is the work of excommunication and there is the work of secession, which is a reverse excommunication. Christ taught that when assemblies would not repent, it was the duty of the minority to kick the dust off their feet lest the curse cling to them and to depart from that jurisdiction. And so whether the super-apostles have the control of this assembly or whether they do not, there is a path to take. There is the ability to remove them and if they cannot be removed, to come out from amongst them. So this is the call. This is the central exhortation. Be strong. Have fortitude. Separate. Have your affections be properly placed. Be holy under the right things and not profane. And this has many applications. The sense of the text is plainly about Corinth. Plainly about them dealing with these false apostles. And yet there are many millions, many billions of applications. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Do not form covenants. Do not form binding alliances. Do not yoke nation to nation or state to state, church to church, house to house, man to wife, with an unbeliever. Covenanting with the profane is a source of much destruction. In the Old Testament, seems almost to be a tale of woe only about that theme. Over and over again, wicked alliances give way to unholy affections. And so there was a call here for that. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now as we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper, we'll pick up here next time but what I want you to do is to think about how powerfully what is happening is we are giving a symbol for fellowship in righteousness, a symbol for communion in light and in the things of Christ, in a confessed faith, a confessed form of worship, and a confessed form of government. That we show the accord that we have with each other, the agreement that we have with each other, and that we together are sharing as a temple in the worship, in the temple worship of the living God to seek to be separate from idolatry. So the comments, questions, and objections from the voting members, those with speaking rights.